Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Tonight, the life and times of the former Anglo bank boss, Sean Fitzpatrick, who has died. We look back at Anglo's legacy and his controversial career. We're also learning tonight of the death of Austin Curry, the former Fine Gael TD, SDLP founder and civil rights veteran at the age of 82. The former Tonister Joan Burton and TDs Barry Cowan and Catherine Murphy are here to discuss those deaths, the issues of the day, including the postponement of big transport plans for the Greater Dublin area. And as another Covid crisis looms, what are the office politics of holding Christmas parties during a pandemic? Get in touch with your views on Twitter. Our hashtag, as always, is TonightVMTV. First tonight, the former chief executive and chairman of Anglo-Irish Bank, Sean Fitzpatrick, has died at the age of 73 after a short illness. The former banker played a central role in the growth and then collapse of Anglo-Irish Bank during the economic crash at the end of the noughties. The bank was a big lender to property developers during the boom years. Here is our economics correspondent, Paul Colgan, with a look back at his controversial career. A man who embodied the Celtic Tiger and much of the financial disaster which followed Sean Fitzpatrick was one of the most significant figures in the economic history of this country. An accountant by trade, Mr Fitzpatrick took the reins of Anglo-Irish Bank in 1986. As chief executive, he oversaw a small financial player become one of the biggest operators in the Irish market. As the Irish economy took off in the late 90s, Anglo aggressively expanded its lending. Its loan book grew as the property boom got underway helping finance developers. Plenty of cheap money was then available. As he shifted from chief executive to chairman of Anglo in 2005, he was held up as an example of the Irish economic success story. But with the property market overheated, Anglo and Mr Fitzpatrick's story then turned. Anglo was overextended as Wall Street began to wobble in 2008. Investors and big depositors recognised that it was bust and money began to flow out the door. With the bank on the edge, the chief executives of Ireland's other main financial institutions went to government buildings, seeking a bank guarantee in order to staunch the flow. They too had bought into the property lending frenzy. Were liquidity to dry up in the Irish banking system in the weeks ahead, the inevitable result would be economic catastrophe for this country. Within two years, Ireland had been brought to its knees. Its public finances were too reliant on the transaction taxes that the property bubble had created, and it couldn't afford a bank bailout and the monies needed to save the economy. With Anglo being wound down, the IMF and the EU stepped in. Ireland's economy had been crushed. In this period, recrimination was rife. Anglo pursued Mr Fitzpatrick for €70 million Euro in unpaid loans. In 2010, he was declared bankrupt. 
On three occasions, Mr Fitzpatrick was arrested in connection with the so-called Maple 10 investigation. The 10 were a group of investors used to help prop up Anglo's share price. He was acquitted. In 2017, he was acquitted again, following an investigation by the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement into allegations that he had misled Anglo's auditors. It's a wonderful day for me and my family. Um, I appreciate the media's restraint in this current trial um, and I would hope that my privacy and that of my family um, is respected over the coming days. Thank you very much for everything. Two years later, he had his membership of the Chartered Accountants of Ireland revoked and he was fined €25,000. This was after a tribunal found he had made a series of failures in concealing loans between Anglo and Irish Nationwide. Paul Colgan, our economics correspondent, reporting there. Now, we are mindful this evening that a family is grieving the loss of a husband, a father, a grandfather. But we're also mindful this evening that there are few people who can be as confidently and comprehensively linked to Ireland's economic downfall as Sean Fitzpatrick himself. So we're going to discuss some of the fallout from his controversial career this evening. We will start with the Sunday Times business editor, Brian Carey, who's the co-author of a book on Anglo-Irish Bank with the journalist Tom Lyons. Um, Brian, we heard in Paul's report there that he was chief executive for 19 years, but even after he moved on to become chairman, his fingerprints were still very much all over the organisation. Yeah, very much so. Um, I suppose if you put into context, you know, the success story, the pre-2008, if you like, perception of Sean Fitzpatrick, this was a bank that quoted on the stock market, floated on the stock market in 1986 with a valuation of £1 million. Uh, and by 2004, when he retired, um, the value of the bank had, had risen to over £6 billion. Uh, the, the staff, shareholding uh, directors and staff, hold a stake in the bank of, about, of over half a billion euro. So it was de definitely perceived as a huge success. He, he then stood down as chief executive uh, and became, became chairman. And that in itself really was, I suppose, one of his first mistakes, real true mistakes in terms of, of um, perhaps looking at his legacy now. He should perhaps have, st uh, have stepped away from the bank uh, and it's definitely good corporate governance to do that. So he would have been involved in that period of the bank uh, when he stepped down as you say, and as Paul Colgan said in the report there, uh, the, the lending in the bank simply accelerated uh, and the share price accelerated uh, and particularly their exposure to property developers accelerated. And while he was only chairman and not in, uh, not in, in an executive uh, role, um, he would certainly have uh, had good vision and a good visibility over the, uh, over the vast overexpansion of the bank. You mentioned how the, the market capitalisation of the bank grew so significantly over his tenure. There might be a lot of people wondering whether that was ever really sustainable or whether any of that wasn't built on sand. Was there a time in those early days where the bank's growth was sustainable? Oh, I think I think it, there was. You know, I, a lot of the lending that it did, um, non-property lending, and even some of the property lending was actually quite sound. I think the difficulty was that Anglo became ingrained with the developers. Uh, you know, I think Sean Fitzpatrick uh, in Irish banking circles was seen as a pioneer of relationship banking. And this was a buzz phrase, certainly in the 90s and, and uh, in, in the 2000s, whereby the bank really almost became a partner of the developer. And, and the big difficulty there was that, uh, you know, Anglo uh, was 
lending too much to uh, to a small number of clients. And basically, they were in, in, uh, lending to them individually and to their companies and to certain projects. So, so the actually amount of money that they were lending, both on a personal basis and a company basis, left them overexposed to the sector. Uh, people might remember an infamous radio interview that John Fitzpatrick gave in later years where he refused or declined to apologise for the collapse of the bank. He said it was entirely global factors and not something that he could ever have controlled. Did he have a point or was he slightly in denial about his own responsibility? Well, I think he had a point, but um, it was a very interesting interview with Mar Marion Finucane show. Um, the late Marion Finucane, and she kind of pressed him on it. And it was quite clear at that stage that he struggled to conceive that people would have expected him to say sorry. You know, I think he was completely right that there was a massive liquidity uh, problem, you know, but, but the problems within Anglo, and unfortunately a lot of the problems that, that, that Sean Fitzpatrick uh, contributed to, particularly, you know, the personal loans uh, that he took out to fund investments that were, uh, um, secured on his shares in the bank and the fact that th those loans were not disclosed within the accounts um, due to this warehousing arrangement that uh, that, the, that he, he got involved in with the bank, which effectively saw him move the loans out of the bank uh, prior to the balance sheet at the end of financial year uh, for a couple of days so they didn't show up in the accounts and then shunted them back in a few days later. And I think that really, of many things, that, that, that really you know, harmed his legacy. I think that that internationally as well, it was seen as as as, as crony capitalism. And you know, I, I think if if Sean Fitzpatrick had his time back again, um, uh, he, he would perhaps have looked at that. Maybe he shouldn't have become chairman. Maybe he should have taken out loans with somebody else. You know, but he he. I don't think he was that kind of guy. He he was very much from my own dealings with it. And Tom, I think, would say the same. He was very much in the here and now, and uh, he, he very much kind of looked, even when, when uh, there was a lot of uh, difficulties and legal challenges he was facing, you know, uh, he kind of met it full on. So I, I don't think he would have reflected on it too much. Okay. Uh, Brian Carey, co-author of The Fitzpatrick Tapes and business editor of The Sunday Times, thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show this evening. Now, here in studio, I'm joined by the former taunister Joan Burton, Fianna Fáil TD Barry Cowan and Catherine Murphy, co-leader of The Social Democrats. Uh, Joan, I'll come to you first of all. You were an opposition finance spokesperson at the time of all the Anglo controversy. You then became part of a government that had to inherit the economic mess. You must wonder sometimes what you had to do to be so cursed as to inherit the mantle of power at a time when there was so much cleaning up to do. Well, I think in politics you can't guarantee how anything is going to turn out. But you have to bear in mind, Brian, that Anglo-Irish Bank was a small boutique bank lending to builders on the back of a very loose policy of almost no regulation by the central bank of the time. Because the central bank of the time uh, and its regulation uh, side were split apart on a recommendation of a group uh, that Michael McDowell led because Fianna Fáil were first in uh, office with the uh, PDs mm -hmm. and subsequently then with the Green Party. So no regulation or little or no regulation was the order of the day. So for listeners at home, it's not a good idea ever for the uh, previous CEO of a bank who's built it and dominated, uh, then pick his successor 
as far as we know, uh, Mr. Drum, mm. and then actually become the chairman of the bank, where as far as the world and his wife was concerned, he was still the man very much but in it, control. It's a real blurring of the lines, isn't it? In any kind of meaningful corporation, the chairman is almost supposed to be the person who's holding the CEO to account, whereas it seemed like the well, Patrick he, and David were Drum also, were very much a double act. In, in that famous interview with Marion Finucane, for instance, I remember just being astonished listening to it. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, because, for instance, he wanted swinging cuts in public expenditure, particularly in the whole area of uh, social welfare, because he was a kind of a guru, but it was a bank on steroids and it was never going to last. So we heard initially, oh, there's a, uh, the, 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 you know, there's a liquidity crisis. The basics, the fundamentals are sound. Yes, the Irish economy will have a soft landing. Now, thankfully, uh, you know, we, we got out of it and we formally exited the bailout uh, in 2000. 2013. And then piece by piece, but all over the country. Remember, emigration in those years had become voluntary. So there were people, mothers and fathers all over the country saying goodbye to their 21 or two-year-olds. All the graduations became emigration parties mm. instead of a graduation party of where are you going. It was absolutely dreadful. And of course, it stripped the country of reserves of money that were simply then not subsequently available to deal with the, um, with the housing crisis. But can I just say this? Yes, we, we voted against the bank guarantee and even Sinn Féin voted for it. It, it was crazy because Anglo-Irish banks should have been closed down and the other banks should have been dealt with, particularly what are nowadays called the pillar banks. But instead, Anglo-Irish and Bank of Ireland said, that guy, those guys in Anglo, they're eating our lunch. We're going after them. So in a big flow of testosterone, they went after uh, the Anglo model so that auctioneers would tell you at auctions for property there was say three three uh, people outside one funded by say allied irish another funded by bank of ireland another funded by anglo and they were competing to uh, to actually up property prices it was an absolutely crazy period okay. with no regulation um, Barry Cowan, um, let's address one thing up front. There will always be speculation and conjecture about the substance of a conversation had between Sean Fitzpatrick and others and your own brother, the then Finance Minister, uh, Brian Cowan. You're not here as your brother's keeper, and let's just address that straight out of the blocks, but you must have your own reflections about the manner in which all of that was handled. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a terrible period in our history, in our recent history, and it's, you know, as we are saying off-camera, it's not necessarily even a legacy because there are elements of this have left us still... Uh, repaying the cost associated with everything that, that, that occurred during that time. And of course there was an over-reliance on the property market and property-related income and revenue on the part of the state and the government and that has been acknowledged and, and apologised for indeed on, on, on many occasions. Um, albeit not by Mr Fitzpatrick himself. Albeit by not, not Mr Fitzpatrick. Uh, but the point that was made by, by, by Mr Carey w w was, was the right one insofar as you know they were, they were heavily lent out to too few investors uh, and that coupled with the collapse in the property market, that coupled with the potential collapse for and a run on the banks and so forth led to the bank guarantee, which some agreed with, some didn't. I know Joan said her party didn't agree with it at the time, but in government she supported it thereafter uh, because, you know, we had to be in a position whereby we had to rectify our finances, restore our public finances and be in a position to do so without the threat of contagion across Europe because we were dependent on funds 
and income from Europe to help us in, in, in that struggle. And it was a huge struggle and a huge effort on the part of, part of us all, and particularly many people, as has been alluded to, suffered greatly during that period. But thankfully, we've got to a position whereby our finances have been restored. Thankfully, we're in a position in the context of the pandemic and all that that uh, placed a responsibility on government to be in a position to respond with the right sort of measures and economic help and assistance to workforce, to different sectors. And because of the way in which we restored our finances and managed our finances, we were in a position to avail of uh, funding to help us through the most recent and existing crisis, which again is commendable to everybody concerned in relation to the programme that was put in place that had huge political ramifications mm. for us, but thankfully was sufficient and to put the, the, the country and the state on a sound footing uh, to restore public finances and get back into a situation whereby the economy well, can fund us uh, into the future. We do want to talk about uh, the availability of credit when it comes to large capital projects, and we'll do that in a few minutes as well. But uh, first of all, to you, Catherine Murphy, you're a long-standing member of the PAC. I think if memory serves, you were on the banking inquiry as well. So I wasn't, no. You weren't. no okay, yeah. well, th that's my own yeah. memory at this hour of the yeah. day, and apologies. But nonetheless, you were at the, the forefront of a lot of the, the political scrutiny at the time as well. Mm. Again, you made the point off air that it, can you really call it a legacy? But do, do you think, even 10 years on, that we have learned the true lessons to be learned from all of that? I, I'm not sure we have. Um, and look, um, we're still, there's still a liquidation going on as we speak. Anglo-Irish Bank and Irish Nationwide made up Irish Bank Resolution Corporation. And there's, you know, the, uh, the that's the largest liquidation in the history of the state. <laughs> it's a, a huge one internationally. Um, we've, you know, we, we've, for example, we have a huge national debt. We've lost our pension reserve fund, not all to do with Anglo-Irish Bank, but Anglo-Irish Bank led a culture. And that culture very much drove the, the culture in the other banks um, at a time when there was warnings about, uh, you know, a bubble in terms of property. Um, it was and literally the one bad apple turning the whole barrel yeah, rotten. Yeah, and I, and, I, I, and I think, like, Anglo was not like um, the other two banks, AIB and Bank of Ireland, in that it didn't have uh, branches around the country. It was, you know, was very much tied into the, the construction sector. Um, and you, look, you, you can't look at that without looking at the, uh, the fallout in terms of people's lives, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the very serious price that people paid in terms of well, loss of services, in terms of, in, in terms yeah. of, for example, carrying personal debts and, you know, and, and the kind of stress that that left sure. in society. I will come back to Joan in a second, but Barry, you wanted to come in. Yeah. You know, Joan mentioned the regulatory system that was in place at that time. And it was, the regulator from yeah, the and we had a financial regulator who assured all and sundry that you know the we're well capitalised, the, fund, the fundamentals were right. And you know, I'm just conscious of the the CRU we have now, which is an energy regulator, which has a responsibility to ensure with AirGrid uh, over the last number of years and into the future that there's adequate space for competition to ensure new entrance into the electricity market to give us better prices and competition uh, reflecting in people's bills. And we don't have that presently. And that is a worry. So that's and that I, same I, mistake, that yeah, same well, kind I, of I, I, I'm, I'm nervous of, I'm nervous of uh, even my own government party colleagues and ministers responding to say that issues that I raised and that Alan Kelly raised today are something okay. that are the responsibility of the regulator and removed from government. We can't be seen to allow okay. the same mistakes to be made insofar as it's government policy that needs to be implemented and if somebody is charged with that responsibility and they're not carrying out uh, that issue, okay. not doing it, 
it, it, it, it resorts to the public paying the price, which is in the form of energy prices presently. Uh, there is some other developing news this evening that we do want to touch on for a few minutes, and that is the death of the former Fine Gael TD in Northern Ireland civil rights activist Austin Curry, who has passed away today. He was a founding member of the SDLP in the early 1970s, before later moving to Dublin and joining Fine Gael. In 1990, he ran for president before serving as a Minister for State in the Rainbow Coalition in the 1990s. His family said that he was their guiding star who put the principles of peace, social justice and equality first. The SDLP leader Colm Eastwood has described him as a titan of the civil rights movement. Austin Curry was 82 years old. As it happens, Joan, he was a deputy for Dublin West at the same time as yourself. What was he like as, as both a rival and colleague? He was extremely courteous. Uh, he was a very active constituency TD. Uh, when he came south uh, from the north, uh, I suppose he was subject, uh, particularly in a studio rather like this by uh, Vincent Brown in particular, about what was his detailed knowledge of the different streets in the constituency. Anyway, mm. he got well past all of that. Um, I think what's really sad is we've lost John Hume, we've lost Pat Hume, who's a wonderful person in terms of politics in the North and care for people, and now we've lost Austin. So I would just say to his uh, wife and his family and his children uh, that just send them all my condolences. But he had a very good life, and also he started off in politics in the North by defending a young mother uh, who wasn't able to get a house for herself and her children uh, because she was a Catholic, really, uh, whereas very small families of other persuasions, mm. they could get houses because, as the old go saying goes, they were seen to be on the right side. It was certainly a life well lived. Uh, thank you for those reflections. Coming up next, the rest of the day's news, including criticism of the postponement of large-scale transport projects for Greater Dublin. Do stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. TDs Barry Cowan and Catherine Murphy are still with me. We're also now joined on our panel by the Irish Times Dublin ev editor, Olivia Kelly, because we're going to discuss some fairly kitsch footage that you're about to see on screen right now. And the footage, when you see it, is pretty obvious that it was made in the middle of the noughties. But this was the utopian, futuristic view, uh, view of the future as outlined in the Transport 21 plan. This was supposed to be Dublin's underground link from the city centre to the airport, which was supposed to be operational by the year 2020. 12. 
Not so, of course, as we know. And today we've heard news from the National Transport Authority that it could be at the very least 2031 and possibly later before the metro links the city centre to the airport. Olivia Kelly, uh, this seems to come somewhat out of the blue. Do you have any explanation for why the delay when we thought the metro was going to be done by 2027? Well... I suppose we all knew at this stage because of leaks that we've had over this year that it wasn't going to be 2027 anymore. But I think maybe the disappointment is that there's no actual date for it. It's just post-2031 now. So I think people would almost feel more comfortable if they had even even a, a, a 2034, something to aim for. But all it is at the moment is 2027 that's now moved to somewhere in the decade from 2031 up so to 2042. So it's somewhere in that 10 minute window and we don't know where in that window it's going to finally open. Yeah, exactly. And I think as well, what people had hoped to see after stuff like the Climate Action Plan was movement in the other direction, that things would be speeded up rather than slowing down. And uh, particularly because there's a big budget increase here, we're going from what was in the 2016 strategy, which is the last iteration of this, what was a 10, just over a 10 billion plan, 10.3 billion, to 25 billion. And when you hear figures like that, you would think, God, we'll be getting an awful lot more we're actually getting less. So, so more, more than, money we're more is than, doing less work. We're more than doubling the spend and we're actually getting less yeah. things yeah, for that yeah, money. Yeah, which is just profoundly disappointing. Now, you could say there's more in the strategy just than just rail, than sure. just Metro and Lewis and all that sort of thing. But they're the things that suck up the cash. That's where the money goes. It goes on, on, the, on the, the heavy rail, the Metro, the art underground that we're not getting at all now but those are the sorts of projects that swallow up the money and that's why they get the most focus in in when we're when we're talking about these these Dublin transport strategies. Uh, Barry Cowan uh, as the government representative on the show tonight can you offer any kind of explanation as to why something which was originally supposed to be 2027 is now deferred for at least four years and potentially up to 14? Well as you said in your introduction um, this has come somewhat out of the blue the National Transport Authority met with uh, Dublin TDs, uh, the Roctus members today, outlining this fact, as has been alluded to. This is coming shortly after the publication of a National Development Plan, shortly after the Climate Action Plan last week, the need to move at pace to meet the sort of emission targets that have been set. And, you know, and I, I would, I would designed, predicated on the idea of these projects happening. Yeah, and I know you know, they've reaffirmed the commitment that planning will be sought next year and there are processes associated with that which will take some time. But you would hope, have hoped there would be some indication uh, to show and paint a picture to those whom, you know, await this for some time now that this is moving in the right direction. And, I, you know, I would expect um, Minister Ryan to respond to the National Transport Authority's briefing today uh, to copper fasten the commitment that have been made, as I said, in the development plan, in the climate action plan, um, to meet the sort of demand that's expected and that had been assumed. And as has been said also, you know, adequate funding has been set aside. I know not only to deal with the metro, to deal with mm. bus connects and many other aspects of the transport plan, but this is something that is pivotal uh, to the city's development. It's something that's pivotal to the aspirations that's contained within the Climate Action Plan. And it's something that needs to be responded to so, by, the, by the line minister, which is Minister Ryan. So to answer the question, do you have any explanations as to why it's delayed? The answer is no. No, I don't. Um, I wasn't at the, 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 the briefing today. From what I've heard about it, questions remain outstanding. And I'm saying... 
from my part as an elected member of Dáil Éireann, I would hope that the Minister with responsibility in this area would be seen to respond and respond uh, quickly and effectively. Now, Catherine Murphy, you're a TD for the Greater Dublin area, so you were part of that briefing this morning. Was yeah. there any explanation given to you or the others on that call as to why the delay? No, uh, essentially there was several uh, people asked about the uh, trying to get a timeline, for example, for uh, Metrolink, and there was no uh, there was no timeline uh, forecast. It was very much part of the National Development Plan. You, you need these big game changer projects if you're actually going to, um, you know, address the issue of our climate targets and our congestion problems. Mm. Um, you, you need those big game changers. The, the like of the tunnel was one of them. The uh, metro uh, link was another one. Um, and if you look at where the growth has happened in the greater Dublin area uh, between the census in 96 and 2016, and that's the kind of horizon you need yeah. to look at, um, Fingal has uh, has been the part of Dublin where the most growth has happened with 41% of, of an increase. It's probably doubled its population in that in the time horizon. So ideal after for that, lighter heavy after, rail of some sort uh, then. After that, Mead and Kildare are the next two mm. areas where most of the housing development Navin was supposed happened. to have its original rail line in 2009. It's now not going to get it until but, sometime but the in the thing 2040s. Is, if, you're, if you're going to take pressure off the city centre, you've got to address it further. You've got to address it where people are getting into their mm. cars to begin with and you've got to make it attractive for people uh, to use public transport. Not everything is going to be sorted out by mm. people buying very unaffordable, very unavailable uh, electric vehicles. Absolutely, yeah. um, so you have to do the public transport pieces and the lack of ambition on this is just breathtaking. Well, it, does it come down, Barry Cowan, to a question of ambition? Because there's never been a time where more people are energised about the need for radical measures to tackle climate change. There has never been credit available to governments as cheaply as it is right now. For the next year or so, there's actually very few fiscal rules tying the government to make mm -hmm. sure that it only borrows a certain amount. There's never been a more availability of green bonds, if that's how the government wanted to do it. And it's never going to be as cheap to build any of these things as it is to start doing them today. So when all of those are there, why would anybody stand over a delay of the magnitude that's now being proposed? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, one aspect of the delivery of such projects of this magnitude uh, is the whole planning process, the consultation process, the reviews, the judicial reviews, appeals and so forth. And I know the government is, 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 is particularly interested in bringing forward a planning reform bill uh, in, the, in the near future. And I think this is one area or aspect that has to be investigated and provision made in legislation uh, to cut through a lot of that uh, time delay that is as a result of a very wide-ranging planning process that we have but our and you know I see that could be as long as a piece of string yeah as well, well like I mean you know you take board Pernola in relation to the existing law no statutory time period for them to make a decision in relation to a, sing a single house application or a multiple house application okay. and that has to be rectified with statutory time periods for them I think, I think you, can, you can blame the planning mm -hmm. process for a lot but I think what you have to look at here is when you actually get moving on these projects when you get them into planning like the the Metro North is going to go into planning next year, we're told. But that should have already happened a considerable period in the past. And you could say the same for a lot of the other things that are going to happen post-2031. Yeah, you can say about the, the four, they'd, they'd the four Lewis lines. I yes, accept exactly. that. I accept and the four that. Lewis lines that are, that are uh, going to happen uh, post-2031, when are we going to see them in planning? You know, you have yeah. to get the ball rolling. I don't doubt that and I accept that and appreciate that. But there are means and methods by which legislation can be amended to help assist 
in rectifying time delays associated so, so, with some, that. Some of, the, some of this, some of this yeah, is about choices and political will as well. I mean, we already saw the DART um, underground actually go through the planning process, get to railway order yeah. stage. And, and that's then the it was one pulled. project that's been dropped altogether. And it was pulled. Uh, so look, the, the, you know, there, there is a political will in relation to these public transport projects, the big ones, uh, because for the very point that has been made, they do, they do absorb a well, huge amount of the available budget. Well, I, I certainly reckon that the Minister for uh, the Environment would probably be writing to the Minister for Transport wondering, well, these things have been delayed until you realise that they're actually both the same Minister and then see where things go. Um, Olivia, this is all only a draft strategy by the NCA. What are the next steps and is there still some scope for the government to intervene and to tell them to be more ambitious? Yes. But to be honest, I don't see that happening. It's, a, it's out for consultation now, for public consultation, until the 17th of December. But it's been a review process for the last year, so they've really done their consultation over the last year. So this is basically the outcome I of it already? I wouldn't imagine, very, unless there is, as you say, a, a political pressure from the yeah. parties and government yeah. to speed them up, I, I really don't see much changing. Um, and, and we're seeing as it's a sort of a, 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 a two-term strategy, if you think of it that way. Mm. We have up until, uh, from now until 2031, and then the next half from 2031 to 2042, all the heavy lifting is going to be done in the next half. All those rail projects that we've just mentioned, the, the Lewises and the Metro, they'll be they'll be happening in the next half. So, and then so we the, have an aspiration of another yeah. eight Lewis lines, but they're not actually happening with, they're mentioned in this strategy, yeah. but they're not even happening but, within the period but, of time so, of the strategy. They're happening post 2042. So all of that ultimately means, we're running very short on time, but all of that ultimately means then that there actually won't be anything operational within the next 10 years that hasn't already started, that they've basically decided yeah. there's nothing that will operate a decade from now that isn't already there. Yeah, as you said, that's, it's a draft strategy and there is potential for those impacted by this, not only the general public, but obviously the political established parties need to respond to this. And yeah. speaking to my own right. colleagues, party colleagues in, the, in, in Dublin, the greater Dublin area, they were taken aback by this today. Yeah, I think and there's a breaking be, point yeah. as well, and that, that will be the public feeding into that. Yeah. We're yes. already seeing that mm. with the Dark Plus project. Mm. There's a very energised and exercised population out there and I think COVID has changed some things as well mm -hmm. in relation to people uh, looking at the quality of their lives, the length of time they're spending in cars um, and you know essentially these big projects are the things that okay. will make the I difference. I accept that and, and there's a responsibility okay. on the NTA to respond. Uh, we will leave to it there for now so. but speaking of COVID another COVID Christmas does loom and the office politics of partying in a pandemic need to be examined. Stay with us. Now, hospitality chiefs have been told no new restrictions are on the cards after a meeting with government officials today. I'm joined by one of the people who was on that call, Adrian Cummins, Chief Executive of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Um, Adrian, if the threat is not further restrictions, then what was the point of today's call? Uh, good evening, I, uh, Gavin. The point of the meeting today with the officials from the government was to emphasise that we need to step up to the mark around COVID inspections. Uh, they provided information and data around non-compliance within our industry. Uh, we accept the data that they presented, uh, that there was, uh, while there is 70% of businesses that are compliant, we have about 30% uh, that are a blend of 
Uh, non-compliance are those that need to do a little bit extra to make sure they're compliant. And as we go through the next uh, number of weeks uh, throughout the winter period, it's important that we protect public health, but also we maintain our operational viability of our industry, keep our doors open and safely navigate through the winter and Christmas season for hospitality. Uh, and we need to live with COVID into the future as well. So we had a very robust conversation with government officials and we've also appealed to them to look at those businesses, the minority that are out there, that we need to have extra inspections on then. And if they continue to do so, well, then we need to take action and shut these places down. You did say in your first sentence that we have to step up enforcement. Who is the we? Does it have to be the restaurants and hospitality sector policing itself or who's actually doing the enforcement there? Well, this has to be a, co a cooperative effort between uh, the industry making sure we do everything right on the doors. Then we need to have spot checks by uh, the state agencies, the Health and Safety Authority, the HSE, and also on Garda Siakana, where it needs to be. That if you have continuous uh, flouting of the rules and regulations, uh, that those businesses will, uh, penalties will be brought brought to bear upon those and if if needs be these businesses are shut down because if they are there is a minority out there and it is a small minority they're giving everybody else a bad name and we need to make sure we protect public health at all times so that's our call to the to the officials let's ramp up the inspections make sure we do everything right it's we need to protect public health but we also need to make sure that our industry can stay open fully viably and continuously into the future, into the springtime next year. Adrian Comas, Chief Executive of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, thanks very much for joining us this evening on Thank the Tonight you. Show. Uh, TDs Barry Cowan and Catherine Murphy are still with me in studio. We're also joined by HR consultant Caroline Reedy from the HR Suite. Uh, Caroline, come to you first of all. There's lots of talk about whether uh, a lot of these uh, people in hospitality, if they're not enforcing the COVID certificate, that they might be putting the health of their own customers at risk. Could you argue as well that they're actually putting the health of their own staff at risk? And is there some vulnerability there as employers? I think without doubt, like people are very nervous still. And I think the increased numbers has made staff and customers all the more nervous again. And big reassurance is required that we're doing all we can. It's an obligation under the health and safety legislation for employers and for employees also, they expect that. And I think we've done such a good job up to now, like supermarkets, pharmacies, etc., that have been opened all the way through, that we really need to step up from the perspective. Now, obviously, we have to put in context as well that it's a small percentage, hopefully, overall, especially now after hearing the fact that enforcement is going to really come upon people who are not compliant. So hopefully that echo of warning is going to really ring true and address that issue. But if employers are open to some claims from their own employees, does that mean then that some of these uh, outlets that aren't enforcing the certificate, that they could be opening themselves up to some sort of challenge or some sort of HR complaint by their own staff? Absolutely. From a health and safety perspective, they have vicarious liability to ensure they provide a safe place of work. And if they're not meeting the statutory obligations on them at the moment to ensure that they're ensuring vaccinated people are entering the premises, they're checking COVID certs, etc., they're absolutely, I would argue, leaving themselves wide open to employees 
in an environment where it's really hard to get staff. Everybody's complaining about retention uh, of staff. And I think if you're not giving them the trust and confidence that you're doing all you can to provide that safe place of work, I think you're going to have a big staffing issue and potentially claims also. So it's definitely not making good business sense. Uh, Barry Cowan, I can understand to a point why the government would want to hold a meeting with representatives from hospitality to underline the gravity of what's at stake and the role that they can play to keep everyone safe. What I don't understand is why you need to start talking about the idea of stepping up sanctions when the sanctions are already there by law. It's literally a crime to admit somebody to a hospitality venue without checking for their COVID certificate or if they're unvaccinated. I don't understand why is the government pussyfooting around if it thinks it's a problem. Why not just enforce the law you've got? Yeah, well, I think that's the message that they would have given loud and clear to the relevant sectors that were before them today. And I welcome that meeting. And it's important that the meeting took place. It's important that people understood where we're at. There is a, an effort on the part of the government, together with public health, advice to ensure that these businesses have an opportunity to remain open, to retain, regain a livelihood and be in a position to offer uh, the facility and services which they have grown accustomed to and, and want to be visited by uh, the general public. Uh, the point... But why the need to forewarn, though? Would it not be, make more sense to almost make an example of some of the offenders? Well, I mean, you know, there's 70% compliance, 30% non-compliance, of which only 6%, I think, is outright non-compliance. Mm. So I think they reiterated uh, the, 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 the wish and aspiration of the government uh, to work together in order to ensure that the level of compliance improves and increases and takes account of the worrying rate of infection that we have presently in order to ensure that that improves, in order to ensure uh, that they remain open and remain viable and that people have an opportunity to enter their premises in a way in which they feel safe and secure. And of course, okay. as Helen has alluded to, it's imperative that the workforce within, these, uh, within the hospitality mm. sector are assured that every effort has been made to, to accommodate and look after sure. their health. Uh, Catherine Murphy, then, which side would you rather come down on, this idea of consultation and warning them about the prospect of sanctions or the government actually utilising the sanctions that it's already got at its disposal? Well, as you know, I mean, as you said, there, there, there are sanctions already and essentially what you want to do is, you you know, there there's a very high level of compliance. Uh, I've experienced it myself and I think as the numbers have gone up, you've seen uh, extra care being taken. I, that's been my experience. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to have the uh, you know the businesses where there is a high level of compliance getting the visits really what needs to happen is that they're more targeted at the areas that where where there's non-compliance so as do we actually get through this winter mm. we always knew it was going to be a challenge once once people moved indoors but, and this is a sector that has suffered very badly. Are we even clear as to who is exactly supposed to be doing the inspecting because you presume that if it's a matter of the law that it should be the guardie but then you could have the health and safety authority you mm. could have different other restaurant like regulators or the likes like it's not even totally clear as yeah. to who has the authority to knock on your door and see whether you're up to scratch or not well the hsa i presume and the hse are those that carry out the inspections and they would inform the guardie if people are um, flouting but the law is that not half the problem then if there's so many different agencies involved in making sure that people are up well, to the scratch. bottom line is that the authorities work together to ensure that the regulations are adhered to and that everybody buys into it and ensures, as Catherine has said, that the winter is one where we can enjoy these facilities. Okay. And um, every effort should be made to enforce the law in the event of people flouting it and flouting it uh, with 
the sort of irresponsible behaviour that, 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 that impacts negatively on everybody else. I don't want to alarm anyone who hasn't got ahead of their shopping, but it's only 46 days left to Christmas, which does raise some question marks about whether Christmas parties can happen. And Caroline, I suppose the question mark about whether Christmas parties ought to be happening in person is sort of linked to the whole question mark about whether people still should be back in the office in the traditional way. And there has been mixed messages about whether we are expected to be back in offices by now or not. Absolutely. I suppose the most up-to-date um, guidance has been um, only go back if it's necessary or for training or for meetings, you know, that are necessary. And I think it's the sensibility of space as well. Some environments will facilitate people going back, have their own office or have enough social distancing that people feel safe. Um, since this protocol was introduced, there's worker representatives involved. There's a huge amount of collaboration and engagement with staff. And I think once we keep that up, there won't be an issue. I suppose people are anxious as well, though, that there is that collegiality and that social engagement, you know, that we all missed mm. and are anxious to get back to that. Um, and I think without um, compromising anybody who doesn't feel comfortable in going to an event over the season, well, then I think people should be given that option. Sure. And again, that self-responsibility that we talk about uh, comes into play. A lot of Christmas parties would, would often happen in either some sort of a restaurant establishment or often in, in the likes of a hotel ballroom and there might be a band there. We know all the complications that there's been for nightlife in the last couple of months and this idea that are you allowed to dance if it's a band or if it's a DJ or if it's what if it's a wedding band rather than a regular band. I presume all of those would still apply in the instance of a work party. So you could potentially have a Christmas party with a band playing and nobody allowed to dance or sing along. It sounds a bit uh, scary, doesn't it? The concept of it. Uh, it's not exactly the ideal Christmas party night out. I think a lot of people will be thinking about doing smaller events. So rather than a full company event, there'll be probably department dinners or lunches etc and I think the Christmas party in the context of the way we know it has been changing over time a lot of people now are doing more outdoor activities going to events you know different things and I think everybody will be very mindful of that health and safety and COVID in this uh, lead up because everybody wants to have a very enjoyable safe Christmas and I think people giving the people the option of consulting and engaging with them to say, look, what would you like to do this year? What's the best? Because we do need to make sure that we're rewarding and acknowledging staff too, who no matter what job they've been doing, it's been a really tough struggle in the last 12 months. Uh, Barry, at the root of all of this, though, is still the question mark about whether people do feel like they're supposed to be back in the office. The different employers will have different approaches, but it's only a few weeks since Dr. Roland Glynn was saying, continue to work from home if you can. Tonishta was going, well, that's not actually the official advice. And then a few weeks later, he was saying we might not all be back to offices until February. Can you understand if people are a little bit ambiguous about whether there should be parties or even if they should be in the office at all? Yeah, but again, it's the duty of the employer to ensure that every opportunity is afforded to the employee to work either from home if they so wish or if it's possible to ensure that they can work in their place of work and, 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 and gain from the collegiality and the friendships and the, the, the working together, which we all have craved for. But again, you know, as it means, so the employer has some self-responsibility to ensure if they would like people to work from home or in the office that every effort is made to accommodate either scenario. And as has been alluded to in relation to Christmas parties and whatnot, there are different bespoke arrangements that will suit mm -hmm. the times we are in. And again, you know, those that host these parties will of course work in tandem with employers to ensure that all regulations and compliances uh, are adhered to. Catherine, are you satisfied that the advice about whether people should still be back in a physical workplace or working from home was clear, given those mixed messages we've had in the last few weeks? No, I, I don't think it's clear. In fact, we had a change in arrangement even in the Department of Health only in the last week or so. Um, 
Uh, I think we've got to change the... I think we've got to change the narrative on this and I think we, it's quite obvious that this is going to be something that will go on for some considerable time into the medium okay. term. And I do think that we've got to start looking at the circumstances that make it safe. Okay. And that's things like good ventilation sure. and advice on that and uh, guidance on that is really important. Carolyn, we've got 10 seconds. Is there a HR liability for employers to make sure that their staff don't contract COVID at a Christmas party? I don't think it's possible to give anybody that blanket guarantee but taking all reasonable precautions okay. and giving people the option to go or not, I think, must be considered. Okay. Caroline, Catherine, Barry, thank you all very much for joining us this evening. That is all we have time for tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all the major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. From all the late team here, good night, thanks for watching and take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.